We've been in the Gospel of Mark for a while, and it's one of those books that moves along quickly, but as we come to chapter 4, it actually parks on one big idea, and Pastor Danny's been speaking on it the last couple weeks, and actually the story we're about to read ties into that this morning. I wonder if you've ever experienced a powerful and unexpected moment in your life. Psychologists actually tell us that when we experience something like that, it creates what's called a flashbulb memory. Like our brain takes a picture of that moment. And often it's tied to its power, its surprise, and its significance. And your brain just captures it. So famous events like the assassination of John F. Kennedy. People can remember, right, where they were, who they were with, how they felt, how it affected the people around them. For those of us a few years younger, September 11th was the first day, I think, like that for us. I remember as a child um, seeing the Challenger explosion happen. And um, that was powerful because I grew up in Concord, New Hampshire, which is where Krista McAuliffe, the teacher who was on that flight, came from. So we actually have a planetarium in Concord called the McAuliffe. Uh, what's it called? Krista McAuliffe Planetarium. Yeah. And so, so powerful and unexpected events. These can also happen personally, right? People will talk about the birth of a child and how there's that flashbulb moment where they just remember the powerful, like hopefully the birth of a child isn't unexpected, but uh, you remember the power and the flashbulb nature of that moment, right? I think if you were to talk to Jesus' disciples, the story we're about to read would be that kind of moment for them. And and, and it's a bit, I don't even know if unfortunate is the right word, but we have, we have a tendency to grow numb to things, don't we? This was true in World War II when um, London was, bomb, was bombed. When it first happened, there was dramatic reaction. But after a while, people just started going about their normal lives. Because human nature is we kind of grow used to stuff. And, and the story that we're about to read can be so familiar that we get used to it. But I hope, and I'm praying, and I have prayed this week, God, would you help us to see and feel this moment that we're about to read in all its glory? Look at Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, He, that's Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great, you can underline that word great if you want to, a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Jesus had said, we're going to the other side. And he was behaving as such. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great 
calm. You can underline that word great again. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. There's our third great in the text. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Oh God, it is our prayer this morning that we would see Jesus high and lifted up. And we know from the rest of your word that everyone who saw him, even a glimpse of his glory, responded just like these disciples with fear. And we acknowledge that our fear is so often directed at the events and circumstances and people of this life. But there is one who is worthy of our fear. And he is Jesus. If we know him, not a fear that he will judge us, but a fear that he is great and powerful and even creation bows at his word. Lord, we pray that you would drive the truth of your word deep into our hearts today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I mentioned as we were reading that there are three greats in this passage. Um, for, for the younger crew, you might call them epics, right? There's probably a better word than that now because I don't keep up with the times very well. But the idea of that word great is the word mega. It's not the word for lots of something. It's not a quantity word. It's actually the word for force. For something being great in its intensity. Great in its power. It's used sometimes of someone yelling with a loud voice, a mega voice. And so we meet three things in this text that are great. And those will kind of make the framework of what we study today. The first we see is a panic-filled mega storm, right? Verses 35 through 38 tell us about this storm. And let me note a few things that pop up in in the lead-up to this storm. Look at verse 35. Notice that this section about Jesus begins with this simple phrase, on that day when evening had come. Now, that's important because if you look back through the first couple chapters of Mark, Mark tends to use very generic words to start what happens. Like, Mark will just say, and again, this was happening. Uh, If you look back at chapter 1, verse 23, one Sabbath. He doesn't identify what Sabbath. He just says, one Saturday. This is what was happening. Chapter 3, verse 1, again, he entered a synagogue. Uh, And you just go through, and it's just this again and again. Even chapter 4 starts that way. Again, Jesus began to teach. But Mark wants to make a point here that the event that's happening is happening on the same day as what we've just been studying. The same day that Jesus has been teaching about the power and impact of his word. Hold that in your memory bank and we'll come back to it. A second thing. Notice that the events of this day are not an accident. So it was not a new day and this is not an accident. Jesus is the one who said, let us go across to the other side. This event has Jesus' purpose and plan written all over it, and as I mentioned, the destination is certain. Can I help us all in the storms of life? 
Jesus' purpose and plan are all over it. He has not left you. He has not sidelined you. He's directing. Notice also, and this I I can genuinely say was new to me because I'm in that stage of life reading my two-and-a-half-year-old all these Bible stories. Right? Been there? And I think that most of our Bible story pictures of this scene actually have it totally wrong. And here's why. Look at what the text says. And leaving the crowd, they took him in with them in the boat, just as he was. Look at the next line. And other boats were with him. Jesus and his disciples at this moment are not alone. Now, I got to tell you, my mental picture of this story is that Jesus and his disciples are alone. There's actually other boats traveling across the lake into this same great storm. And that's interesting because we're about to see a display of Jesus' power on a mega level. And if you think about the displays of his power, many of them are for very small audiences. The the transfiguration happens and there are just three of Jesus' closest disciples with him. Isn't it amazing that the resurrection happens in the middle of the night when very few people would have witnessed the actual event? And it's possible that this event is witnessed by more people than any of those other displays of Jesus' power. He was not, they were not alone. But notice that this was not a storm to mess with. This was a great storm. A boat sinking and life claiming type of storm. Now I'll confess that I haven't lived by large bodies of water for much of my life. Grew up in New Hampshire, we had all of 17 miles of coastline, and I remember a few family excursions to a little place called Newfound Lake. But it ain't much of a lake. Kevin has lived in the middle of the ocean. I mean, not literally, he didn't live on a boat, but he lived in Guam. How wide is Guam, Kevin? Yeah, in the middle, it's one of those dots on your globe in the middle of the ocean. And if you were guessing, you'd probably pick the wrong dot. And Kevin would be like, no, that's Guam right there. And so Kevin has experienced this, the, the reality of a typhoon. Is it, they call them typhoons? Yeah. And even at times a super typhoon. But can I tell you, growing up in the Midwest or the Northeast and spending time in the Midwest and being out here, you've seen us. Have you seen a storm coming? All of a sudden, Jesus and his disciples are in a real frightening storm. And as best they can tell, their lives are at stake. This is a ship-sinking, life-threatening storm. And Jesus is doing what? He's sleeping because they're going to the other side. How do his disciples respond? Not well. Verse 38. He was in the stern asleep on a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher! Do you not care that we are perishing? They actually ask one question, but it has kind of two components to it. The first is this question, do you not care? And the second insinuation is, do you not know how bad it is? Isn't that what our hearts cry in the storms of life? 
And we may not always say it with our words, but we wonder, God, do you love me? God, do you know how bad it really is? I mean, this is really bad. This, this storm in our marriage threatens to rip it apart. This storm in our finances threatens to leave us bankrupt. This storm in our life threatens to end it all. Do you ever feel that way? Can I assure you of a couple things? Jesus' lack of action does not indicate his lack of love or his lack of knowledge. He waited three days to come and raise Lazarus. Not because he didn't know, and not because he didn't love. Can you just take your soul back to that truth? Jesus loves you, and he knows. And when we panic in life storms, nothing is revealed about Jesus, but something is revealed about us. Sometimes things do get worse before they get better. And sometimes, frankly, they just get worse. But we need to stop drawing conclusions about God based upon the outcomes of our lives. That's what the disciples did here. God, this is what's happening to me, therefore you must be like this. When we panic in life storms, what's actually revealed is that we don't know Jesus that well. And we don't trust him well. Can I tell you, I'm really actually comforted by the end of this story. When the disciples say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, these guys have been with him for some period of time now. And they're still learning. And they're still wrapping their heads around it. And they're still struggling to get it. Do you ever feel that way? that you've known Jesus for a while, or maybe you're just coming to know him, and you're still struggling to wrap your mind around him and know him, that's okay. That's natural. <laughs> that's what these guys are doing, and they're with him day and night, right? We're, we're with him as we read his word, and we, we spend time together, and he walks with us, but, but he's not right here, and I'm not seeing him every day, and they're still like, who is this? So there's a mega storm but I'd love us to see, secondly, that there is a powerful, mega calm. That same word great is used again. And he awoke, verse 39, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And notice the two-part answer corresponds with the two things Jesus said, right? He, he spoke to the wind and to the water. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. You know how helpless we are humanly in storms? Right? Like when, when Hurricane Harvey was coming ashore in Texas, what are we told to do and what do we do? Anybody ever lived in the path of hurricanes at some point in your life? Maybe in Florida or, yeah, okay. What do you do when a, a, a um, category five storm is coming and, and as best they can track, it's coming at you? You evacuate right? And so the evacuation notices go out and the whole highway is filled with people evacuating. What else do you do? 
You board up the house. Panic, right? Yes. You double check your insurance policy. What else? Okay, maybe you gather important things to take with you because you know all might be lost. You might come home to a very different picture than you left. What do we do as Christians when those storms come? Pray. We pray. And then we watch foolhardy weather reporters, right? (laughs) Who have realized that it's dramatic live TV to stand on the edge of the ocean while 140 mile an hour winds blow through their hair, right? Or they kneel and pretend they're drowned. That was something else, but, right? And we watch. Imagine how foolhardy we would see it if somebody came on and said, what we need is a hundred of you to go to the edge of the beach and stop the storm. Then we would laugh at those people more than we laughed at the weathermen. Why? Because as human beings, we understand that we are helpless to stop storms. My dad and I went skiing yesterday, and it was a beautiful bluebird sunny day. But I didn't make that happen. We just benefited from it. When I wake up and it's overcast or windy or snowing, I don't go, okay, God, now it's time for me to change the weather. Because we don't do that as human beings. And when Jesus stands up in the boat, he lets us know that he is something very different than us. Jesus shows his power over creation. This is the first creation miracle that he's done. He's healed, he's cast out demons, but this is on a whole other level. In fact, we only see four creation miracles in the book of Mark. This one, he feeds the 4,000, he feeds 5,000, and then he curses a fig tree. That's all we see. But this is a profound moment, and this is where I think we can lose it with our comfort with this story. Can you just let the gravity of this moment teach you something about Jesus? He just stood up in a storm and talked to the wind. And he talked to the water in the midst of a raging storm. You know what's interesting to me? We have three megas in these verses. A mega storm, a mega calm, and a mega fear. But we don't have a mega voice. This text could have said, and Jesus stood up with a loud voice. But it actually says, he rebuked. He put the wind and the water in their place. That's Jesus. And I'm begging you this morning, I'm begging you to let your storybook images of this story away from you and to stand in awe. Because what we get 
with Jesus' words is a mega calm. Think about that. Do you know that the words of Jesus, the words of God, are the most powerful force in the history of the universe? From beginning to end, when God speaks, this is the kind of stuff that happens. Isn't this what happened in your heart when you first realized for yourself that Jesus loved you and that he died for you and that he freely offered the forgiveness of all your sins? And so a simple verse that you heard a thousand times like John 3.16 powerfully came into your heart and changed you. And all you did was bow your knee in front of him. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Because we all know the story of Genesis 1 where God uses his words. To create the world, the universe. But one day Jesus will come again. And he will finally judge the world. And look at the description in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth goes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus in his judging glory. And it demonstrates the power of his word. So I wonder, do we actually truly believe in the power of God's word? I mean, the same word that created the world, that calmed the storm, that will one day judge the world, do you, do you know that's, that's the word we hold? And Hebrews tells us that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can cut to our hearts and expose who we are. That, that it's like a hammer that breaks the rock in, in pieces. And so, no matter the hardness of the heart of someone you know, do you know what they need? They need something more than they need you. Let me say that again. Because some of us think that the troubled people in our lives and the people going through great challenges in our lives, they actually just really need us. But can I tell you they need something more than you? 
They need the words of Jesus. They need the word of God. They need the truth. They need to hear God is our refuge and strength. Not Matt is your refuge and strength. The people that we know who don't know Jesus, they actually need to hear that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you know that's actually more powerful than a neat picture or a big hug. It's actually the word of God that created the world, that will judge the world, that stopped the storms. God's word is powerful. And sometimes I pick up other books by other authors, all excited to read them because I think that they're really powerful. And this is the word that's powerful. This is the word my heart needs and your heart needs. This is the thing that will transform you. This is the heart that the word that your marriage needs, that your neighbors need. This is the word you need to memorize and put in your soul to fight temptation. This is the word Satan doesn't want to hear. God's word. It's powerful. I read a book recently about the Wright brothers, a biography, it was fascinating, about their ability to fly. And it was, it was interesting for a number of reasons, but um, whether you know it or not, the, the Wright's really first public test flights didn't happen in the United States. In fact, most people in the United States were very uninterested in them. After their test flight at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, that we all know about, they actually came back to Dayton, Ohio, and rented a field and flew hundreds, if not thousands, of test flights in that field that had a train going by it every day, and nobody came out to watch. Nobody in the newspapers reported about them. In fact, the first article they ever got about their exploration was done in the Beekeepers Weekly. Because a guy who had a beekeeping in industry was fascinated by what they did. But they went to France because the United States government wasn't even interested in their uh, flying craft. It was spending a ton of money on a craft that didn't fly and crashed into the Potomac River. But the rights they didn't really have the time of day for. So they went to France and the French were fascinated by their skill of flying, and, and they rented a field, and they started flying, and dignitaries came out from all over Europe, and people were just blown away by what they could do. But you know what they were fascinated by? The control that they exhibited over the plane. They flew thousands of times and have at most a handful of crashes in an experimenting age because they were so comfortable with maneuvering the aircraft and they could make a dip, and they could fly high, and they could fly low, and they could buzz the stands, and they could do figure eights and turns, and people were just blown away. Do you know what we have of Jesus in this story? A moment where he demonstrates all this creation, I rule over it. I am in complete control. So what is the response Go back to Mark chapter 4. What is the response of those who see Jesus in this moment of glory? It's actually pretty predictable. 
Verse 40, he looks at them and asks them why they're so afraid. Do you not have any faith? And they were, 41 says, filled with great fear and said one to another, who then is this? Can I, can I translate that for you somewhat literally? There's actually a double phobia in, in the way this verse is actually constructed. And it, it, it reads like this. They were fearing with a mega fear. Hear the point? They were terrified. But that actually shouldn't surprise us. Remember when the angels appeared to the shepherds? I can hear the little kids singing in the back of my mind because we practiced with them. And they were terrified. That's enough. Remember the shepherds? They saw a glimpse. Do you understand? God has seen countless angels in all their glory throughout all time. And the shepherds see a group of angels for a moment. And they are terrified. Remember the transfiguration when Jesus for a moment becomes blazing white in all his holiness and purity? And what it, how do the three disciples who have walked with him for years, how do they respond? They're terrified. Do, can you imagine being at the foot of the cross when Jesus said, it is finished, and the earth went dark, and it shook, and people went, who is this man? Can I ask you, when is the last time your heart said, who is this man? Because I, I fear that we have grown too cozy and comfortable with Jesus. We have a culture that wants us to feel like Jesus is our buddy. And I'm not ignoring the fact that Jesus said, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you friends. And I'm not ignoring the fact that Jesus loves you deeply. And I'm not ignoring the fact that he knows your life and he cares about you and that the disciples had a dead wrong that he didn't care. But can I remind all our hearts, Jesus is not one of us. He is not a man like us who ascended to glory. He is God of very God. And he is glorious and powerful in all he is. And so they feared with a great fear. A glimpse of Jesus' glory raised a deep question for them, who is this man? And it brought on a deep emotion. And so this is the great paradox of this story, is that the powerful words of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, ought to calm our greatest fears. The external fears we face, the storms of life, when we know Jesus, it actually ought to settle our hearts that we should be able to sleep in the boat and not panic. But it also ought to fill us with right fear. Listen, God is holy. And that is not something to joke about. He is pure in all his glory. He is worthy of awe and reverence and fear. 
And that's why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10, if they, if other people have called the master of the house, he's referring to himself, Beelzebul, and this is um, back from Mark 3, that they've accused Jesus of being in connection with Satan. Jesus says, if they've accused me of that, how much more will they malign those of his household, us, his followers? Here's what he says. So have no fear of them. Stop fearing people. Stop fearing the circumstances of life. Stop fearing the events of life. For nothing is hidden that will not be known. And do not fear those who can even kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Listen, if you have never come to Jesus and said, I am a sinner and you died for my sin and I want to give my life to you and I want to bow to you and let you forgive and take away my sins. If you've never come to that place, then you should fear God and you should fear Jesus because God is able to destroy both your body and your soul in hell. That's real. That's not drummed up drama. That's true. But if you've come to Jesus, then it's still true that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it is still true that when the wisest man on earth wrapped up a book on the paradoxes of life, he said, this is the end of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And it's still true when Proverbs says, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. And when Proverbs says the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it rests satisfied. And when Psalm 112 says, praise the Lord, how joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying his commands. We are commanded to fear God. We are blessed as we fear God. And I love this picture that John Piper paints of the fear of the Lord. He describes the fear of God as if we were caught in a terrible storm. While exploring an Arctic glacier, the storm is so strong that you fear you'll blow right over the side of the cliff. This is one of my great terrors. I hate cliffs. I hate them. We were actually skiing a little crosscut yesterday, and I could feel the butterflies in my stomach coming up. My wife and I hiked with some friends to the top of a 14er. Everybody know what a 14er is? Some of you are like 14er. 14,000 feet. We picked the easiest one that we could find in Colorado when we lived there. And so we, we uh, drove down, t- and uh, from, where, from where we were, we drove down a little bit, and then up, and then we, I think we started at about ten or 12,000 feet, and we hiked up to 14,000 feet. It was an easy walking trail for most of it. It was long. I think we were hiking for eight hours out and back. But we finally got to the top, and at the top of all these 14ers, they have a flag for the 14er, and it has the, the name of the mountain on it and the number. And so we got to the top of the 14er, and it was picture time, and we had brought lunch. And I'm immediately terrified. I have no interest in being up there. Even though I just hiked for five hours, I was done. And it was a pretty wide open place. But I could see edges. And if a 275-mile wind had come through at that moment, I would have been blown certainly to my death. Those are the kind of fearful thoughts that are going through my head. And I'm up on this cliff, and it wasn't even a cliff. And we took our pictures, and I'm not kidding you, I went down. 
And they were like, we brought lunch. We're going to sit up here and enjoy the view. I'm like, not me. <laughs> not this guy. He's done. And so I hiked down, I don't know, a couple hundred yards to a place I felt safe. I slid to the inside of the hill. I sat myself back against the rock. And I'm sure that every hiker who came up the trail after me was like, this poor lonely guy. <laughs> but I was terrified. Some of you teenagers need to be a little bit more terrified. But most of us understand what that feels like. Here's what Piper says. The storm is so strong that you feel you blow right over the side of the cliff. But then you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide and find shelter. Even though you are safe, you watch the storm go past with a kind of trembling pleasure. He says at first there was a fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. But then... You found a refuge and gained hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanquished from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. The fear of God, he says, is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God himself. I wonder if we need our hearts awakened a bit to the power and the powerful word of Jesus. And if that ought to dispel some things that are shaking our souls, it ought to dispel from our thoughts some people that are shaking our souls, some events and some circumstances that are shaking our souls. But if it ought to grow in us a healthy fear of God himself and of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that the word of Jesus is powerful and so powerful when we see it in his glory. We say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Pray that you would develop in us a healthy fear of who you are, your greatness, your holiness, your glory, your power, and that you would also develop in us a heart that stops fearing and worrying about the other stuff of life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.